Welcome back to the Inclusive and Online Podcast. My name is Dan. I'm Kate. And I'm Kayla. And together, we're your hosts for the Inclusive and Online Podcast. On this month's episode, we're going to take a look at college admissions and see how recent developments have impacted admission practices moving forward. The admission process has got a lot of attention lately, in part due to the recent Supreme Court ruling uh, regarding affirmative action. And in light of this, we thought it would be a good time to talk about DEI and admissions. We want to take a look at the admissions process as a whole and look at how diversity plays a role and how admissions departments can consider the whole student within the context of college admissions. From my perspective as a student, I am not as familiar with the admissions process aside from my own experiences and benchmarks needed when I was applying to college. So I'm curious to hear more about the process from an admissions perspective and to learn more about the factors that influence admissions. To help us sort this process out, we're going to sit down with Al Case, Director of Admissions Operations for Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. He has nearly 20 years in the field and previously was the Director of Admissions at Lake Superior State University in Sault Ste. Marie, Darton State in southwestern Georgia, and Florida State University, Jacksonville. Welcome to the show, Al. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you currently do in, in admissions. Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me on the show today. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, so just as you mentioned, uh, I am the Director of Admissions or Enrollment Management Operations here at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, which is uh, in Daytona Beach. We actually have a, a couple of campuses. We have another campus in Prescott, Arizona. Uh, had the opportunity to go out there last summer. Really beautiful uh, campus in the mountains, just about an hour and a half, two hours north of Phoenix. Uh, that was kind of a, a an eye-opening experience for me just because uh, I'd only been to Phoenix and I'd always had this impression of Arizona as a desert. And so it was really cool to actually see some other uh, parts of Arizona and see how uh, diverse it actually can be as a state. So getting in Northern Arizona was, was a really cool experience. Uh, and then Embry-Riddle also has what we call a worldwide campus, uh, which is really our online offerings and a series of satellite campuses literally all over the world. So we have campuses in Singapore, in Berlin, in South America uh, that really cater to a lot of uh, our military students that are enrolled at the uh, university. Um, so I've been here at Embry-Riddle now for the past two years, and my role in enrollment operations is a little bit different than what it has been in other parts of my career. I've always worked in enrollment management. However, uh, on, on this campus and in this role, the focus really is an operational focus. So I work a lot with our student information system, which is Campus Solutions, our CRM, Salesforce, uh, and making sure those systems work and talk together. I work with our imaging system, work with all of our front-end recruiters. Uh, it's really uh, in that operational context, we're sort of the glue behind everything that's happening with the outreach and the decision-making. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a different focus for me. In the past, in my other roles in admissions and where I started my career, um, I started as a recruiter. So I was one of those individuals that you would see at those college fairs in the evening in your high schools, giving presentations to seniors and juniors about their options, explaining how the admissions process works and uh, really trying to uh, not only educate students, but at the time I was working at Lake Superior State University, attract them to the university, encourage them to look at our programs, uh, doing that sort of on the ground outreach. 
Um, as my career progressed, uh, I did advance into more leadership roles and I became a director of admissions that really led the strategic and tactical efforts behind that type of outreach. You know, what kind of message are we conveying to these students? What programs do we want to focus on? How do we educate students and parents, counselors, all the all these sort of individuals that are involved in the collective admissions process. Uh, so most of my career has been focused on how do we get these students to the institution? How do we educate them about the process? How do we make sure they better understand what it takes to become a student at whatever institution I had been serving at the time? And now the role is a little bit more on the back side of things, the administrative side, again, the operational side. Uh, but I'm still closely tied to all of that. Uh, and I work with a really great team here. And, you know, part of what we do is understand what, whatever our strategic and tactical efforts are, how operationally we can support those efforts. So it may be doing reporting. I might be crunching some data. I may be putting together dashboards so we can see the insights on how our students are behaving and maybe take action on those sort of things. So it's a little bit different. Um, I do enjoy it. I miss some of the actual interaction that I used to have with students and parents alike, uh, but um, it's still very rewarding knowing that you're part of the architecture that helps make it happen uh, so that it can be as smooth of an experience as possible for our students and parents that are, are, that are looking at our institution. And of course, our colleagues that are trying to make it all happen. Um, and um, you know, one of the biggest differences here at the institution I'm at now with Embry-Riddle is we're very different from most institutions that uh, I've always been exposed to and familiar with, which, so at Lake Superior State University, for example, we consider ourselves a regional public university, largely serves students in the state of Michigan, you could say the Midwest. Uh, when I was in Georgia, same thing, focus was on Southwest Georgia, maybe a little bit broader scope as well. Um, in Jacksonville, it was more targeted to the local community because it was a larger access institution. But here, we're really a nationally serving institution. So when you look at some of the data, most institutions, you see things like over 50% of students come within 50 miles of um, uh, from where they're from, where they graduated high school. For us, we have students from all 50 states, several different countries, and most of our students actually come from greater than 50 miles uh, from uh, where we're located in Daytona Beach. And part of that is because we're very much um, uh, a niche institution, if you will. It's in our namesake, Aeronautical University. We kind of focus on a few highly specialized programs. We have more than those, but those are our sort of uh, hallmark programs, if you will, that you just don't find at every public institution or private institution across the country. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting you mentioned just, you know, it's a little bit different what you're doing now, but, you know, there's going to be some similarities, you know, from institution, from institution and just, you know, how you're serving you know, your particular area, that region, the needs um, that they have as well. So I think it's kind of interesting following your career trajectory and how it's built momentum to a point where you're overseeing more, more of the operation. And I think with that kind of diversity of of experience that you've had being in so many different roles, you, you'll probably have a, some good perspective on this next question that we have for you. Um, so can you walk us through kind of what the typical admissions process looks like? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a fun question. <laughs> and and I say that because it does th there is so much diversity in admissions processes based on different types of institutions um, and the programs that students are looking at as well. Um, so here we're largely a STEM institution, right? Science, technology, engineering, mathematics. 
Uh, our two biggest flagship programs are aeronautical science. These are students who want to fly planes or be in the airline industry, right? They might be doing air traffic control. They might want to focus on air safety. Uh, we know that's been a prominent topic in the last couple of years. Uh, we've seen a lot of incidents in the news where, you know, there's close call here, close call there. Um, so there's that sort of focus. And then the other area for us is, is aerospace. Uh, and that's really blown up in the last couple of years as well. And so for us as a private school that has these really sort of focused programs, um, the admissions process is different than perhaps it was when I was at a school like Lake Superior State or uh, at uh, Florida State uh, College in Jacksonville. Um, in large part, we're looking at students that have um, uh, a particular academic preparation, strong in math, of course, as you would expect, uh, that are looking to come to, to these programs and have a demonstrated ability to be able to really start at a high level of math if they're going into those sorts of programs. So it's not the only thing we look at, but that level of emphasis is, I think, important when you're looking at STEM type programs and the admissions process. Uh, but if you look at public universities and you look at access institutions and then you look at different types of programs, you can see a lot of variance there. Uh, my, my position before this was uh, the director of recruitment and admissions at uh, Florida State College in Jacksonville, large access institution, served 50,000 students. And as an access institution, our goal was just that, access, getting students in through the front door, a variety of programs that don't have that sort of uh, traditional sort of admission standards that most, I think, high school students look at, like, oh, what do I have to have as a competitive GPA or competitive test score? In that situation, we're more interested in making sure you have a high school diploma and or GED. We want you to get into one of these programs. And for a lot of those students, they're pursuing associate degrees and potentially, especially if traditional age, want to transfer to uh, a more traditional four-year university to then earn a bachelor's degree. Uh, some of those students are adult learners as well. Maybe they're looking at just a certificate or some sort of credential to kind of change their uh, their working circumstances change, looking for something with more immediacy to change a career directory, trajectory. So in those cases, and at a school like that, it's all about access. We're focusing on making sure people know how to complete an application, get their financial aid set up, getting them through the door so they have the opportunity to pursue uh, a credential of some sort. And in contrast, then you go to a regional public university like Lake Superior State, which I just saw recently in the news, and you're all probably familiar in Michigan, signed a, a pact uh, along with nine other state universities, Oakland University included, that if a student meets a 3.0 GPA, they'll be admitted to the university. So that falls sort of under that category of moderately selective, right? If you're a good student, you're probably going to get into the institution, uh, but there has to sometimes be some discernment with students that may be underachieved in high school, that still may need a little bit more preparatory work in order to have success there. So, you know, at all three of the, in all three of those examples, there's a lot of variation in what we're looking at. And the focus there I know is largely on merit and academic preparation, but even with all three, we still look at other factors, not so much necessarily for admissions purposes. Here at Embry-Riddle, yes, they might be a consideration, but at a school like FSCJ, it's about will they have the tools or do they know about the tools so they can have success, the resources, what else is in their environment so that they can come here and achieve their goals. 
Um, and some of those goals may be highly ambitious. They might be modest. There's quite a range, but it is about making sure they have access to the resources, can capitalize on it. And it's mostly about education and preparation for them to have success. Um, whereas if you do look at excluding us, uh, some of the more elite institutions, if you will, that always seem to be in the news cycle, the Harvards, the Yales of the world, right? It's all about fierce competition. Who's got the best SAT scores, the best GPA, who knows who. And that's a whole different ballgame. So it's kind of a long way of me, me saying that admissions is not a monolith, right? There's so many different uh, uh, ways of students getting into different types of institutions. Uh, most of the institutions across the United States are going to fall along the lines of being regional publics or access types institutions where, you know, if you're wanting to get into one of those schools, there's probably a pathway for you to get in the program you want to be in. Uh, some programs can be difficult because of competition or limited capacity. Uh, nursing, for example, uh, almost everywhere across the country always has some capacity issue because of the clinical experiences and limitations in hospital settings. So a lot of people may want to go into that profession, but as much as those institutions want to let everybody in the door, the realities are that they have to have these clinical experiences and then they're limited by their partnerships with the hospitals and healthcare providers for how many people can actually do that. So they do have to cap and maintain some of those things. And kind of building off of that, we were wondering how much of the process is determined by the admission staff at the institution versus the legal requirements. Now, that's a great question, too. I think most institutions have a lot of control over what they can determine uh, for admission standards and requirements, uh, especially if they start looking at particular programs. Uh, but depending, again, on the nature of the institution, uh, for state universities and state colleges, they might have to adhere uh, to whatever standards are set forth by the state. Uh, private institutions probably have a little bit more flexibility on that because they are indeed private, so they get to set their own rules. Uh, ultimately, I think one of the big things that the general public probably isn't aware of is that most colleges and universities participate in Title IV financial aid. So we all have to adhere to whatever standards they have, right? So to be a Title IV institution, meaning, great, we want to be able to facilitate financial aid, we want our students to be able to receive financial aid, you have to be an accredited institution and one that's approved by the DOE, the Department of Education. So um, we have those standards and rules to follow in order to, uh, uh, to make sure we're compliant and can participate in that process. Uh, but I think typically for state institutions, they've got those state rules again to follow. Private institutions definitely have a little bit more leeway. And of course, here in Florida, um, you know, we've seen a lot of changes in this past year when it comes to what the state has determined um, public colleges and universities can do particularly along DEI lines. Uh, and so there are limitations that are in place for those state institutions that aren't necessarily in place for private institutions uh, like Embry-Riddle. So shifting gears a little bit, how can the admissions process keep the whole student in mind and not just necessarily numbers and test scores? And I'm gathering it might look a little different depending on the institution, but if you could speak a little bit on that. Yeah. And I know that's kind of a broken record for me so far, right? <laughs> I keep talking about the types of different institutions. And I think that matters, right? Because 
there's so many, there's 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. And I think to the average person, when you say the word college or university, there's this sort of picture of a, you know, an Ivy green or an open space or square, traditional residence halls, but there is a lot of variety and, and um, you know, they, they cater to all sorts of different types of students who have different interests and different types of pursuits. Um, for keeping the whole student mind, I know this is a big topic lately. Uh, last week was the NACAC conference in Baltimore. Um, I didn't attend this year. I've attended in the past. Uh, some of my colleagues here from Embry-Riddle were in attendance, and I know colleagues from other institutions that were in attendance. Uh, and it was one of the highest attended NACAC conferences in years. There's something like 7,000 plus people there. And I think a big part of that is because there was such a focus on the wake of the SCOTUS decision this summer on uh, banning affirmative action in the university and college admissions process. So one of the, the themes throughout the panels and sessions and workshops there was how do we make admissions more holistic in light of the inability for these institutions to no longer look at these factors such as ethnicity and race uh, when making decisions. So a lot of the panels, um, as I understand it, and some of the conversations I've had subsequent to uh, were about what can we use as a proxy for this? You know, are we an institution that uses an essay or letters of reference? And can that give us context about the student and how can we know more about them beyond those test scores and their, their grades and academic preparation? Which isn't to discount those other things. I, I know they're important. I think the data bears that out, especially for some of the more challenging technical and rigorous programs. Uh, but I think it's important to also consider who the person is uh, when looking at um, at them, especially if you're a more selective or highly selective institution and there's limited space. So essays, I think, are a part of it. I think certain proxies uh, are coming into consideration. So looking at underserved zip codes or looking at socioeconomic status. Uh, if you know in a certain zip code that um, you know, folks there are earning less in family income compared to folks in another zip code, and there are less of them going college bound. And part of your mission as an institution is to get more students from those backgrounds to try to address equity in those ways and possibly diversity. If you can start looking at some of the socio demographic information, that might serve as a, as a proxy for not being able to look at some of the things that we would collect otherwise, uh, and looking at the total population. Uh, I think most institutions are interested in trying to have a population that reflects their community, reflects their region, and is fair, I don't know if that's the right word, fair, but is, is more of a just reflection of the diversity that really exists out there in their population. Uh, and I think those are some of the ways schools are starting to look at this is what can we use in, 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 uh, as a proxy or as a replacement for some of this information we're not allowed to look at anymore. Um, for us as a STEM, primarily a STEM institution, it's interesting. One of our uh, strategic goals has been to increase enrollment uh, for women at the institution. And we were following SCOTUS to see if beyond race and ethnicity, was gender consideration um, and biological sex going to be something that was going to be in the mix there? Um, it's not, uh, at least our interpretation of it is that it's certainly not. So 
uh, we're, we're glad because we have scholarships and efforts focused on attracting more women to the institution and participating in STEM programs. Uh, and we had success with it because we made it a deliberate and intentional effort this past year. Uh, our enrollment uh, in our, our programs for, for female first-time students went from 24% of our new first-time uh, first enrollment last year to 30% this year. So we were really pleased to see that 6% gain over that year. Um, so I, I think it is important to look at the whole student. I think universities and colleges are trying to find creative ways to do that. Uh, especially sort of in the wake of recent decisions like the SCOTUS decision that may not allow us to look at uh, um, some other factors or considerations that may have been used in the past to try to find a population that more accurately reflects the region we live in and serve. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, as part of this decision um, and just looking at some of the history of affirmative action in the admissions process and just learning that, you know, some of this started to come about from uh, an executive order in the Kennedy administration and, you know, introducing the concept of what became affirmative action there in the workplace and colleges and universities started looking at as to identify any kind of deterrence, education opportunity and addressing historical inequalities. And, and I found it interesting that uh, just learning that the accrediting commissions, they have standards related to diversity and inclusion that uh, institutions must maintain. However, uh, there are private colleges, uh, just from what I read, that are trying to stay more in step with state or local legislation on DEI initiatives. And, you know, not to pick on you or make you speak on the entirety of the state of Florida, but it hasn't been a lot of flattering uh, stories coming out of there related to DEI. There's been a lot of media coverage on it. Uh, it's not a flattering picture. So, I mean, just living there, working there and being in this environment, what's some kind of your current take on DEI in Florida, and what have you been hearing from colleagues and students and families who may be affected by those changes? Uh, it's <laughs> Florida's a, a great state. <laughs> I do enjoy living here, uh, but the politics are 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 challenging, and uh, it's 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 an interesting place to be at this point um, in in the state's history and where we are as a nation. Uh, I've heard commentary that is outright alarming regarding the changes that have been made from folks that are not as concerned, um, really the kind of whole range and the whole gamut of it. I think it's it's kind of challenging right now. It's fairly new, right? So um, what has happened here in Florida largely is our governor, Governor Ron DeSantis, passed legislation and then it, it was enacted in a law like in May or June of this year that essentially prohibited state universities and colleges from spending money on any DEI efforts. So some of the language around that included, you can't have a mission statement, you can't use DEI in hiring practices, you shouldn't use funding for student-supported uh, events. Um, there needs to be caution, and I, I don't recall the exact language, but caution around uh, what can be taught in the classroom. And certainly that's where faculty and uh, instructors were, were greatly concerned because it was an infringement potentially upon their academic freedom. And I think rightfully being concerned and justified about that. Uh, what's happened since has been really odd. Some of those state universities and colleges have removed their diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion statements. Um, they've renamed offices. Uh, so you've seen some of that. Uh, uh, and 
it's been difficult to tell what's happened in practice because it is so new. And I know some institutions have really just kind of quietly done what they could to, I think, adhere to what the law states and making sure they're having an appropriate legal interpretation of that. Uh, One of the the benefits of us being a private school here is that it doesn't impact us in that respect, right? So we are not having to eliminate our mission statement for DEI. In fact, just last year, we created a new position, which was um, uh, Chief of Diversity and Inclusion, and that position was filled, and we just invested more in our DEI efforts, I think, as a university. There's been more programming, there's been more training, uh, there's just been more focus on it as a whole uh, for students, faculty, and staff. So as a private institution, it, it I don't want to say we're in a bubble, but it definitely feels like it has been less impactful for us in our sort of day-to-day experience. Uh, but I imagine for the state universities, for those state colleges that have had to walk around that and determine what the legal interpretation is of that, it's been more of a challenge. Um, for our students, particularly prospective students, it's definitely raised those questions. I know our recruiters have had more conversations from students and parents, especially those that are coming from out of state, about what the climate is like here, what the environment is like here. So though we can say we are doing what we've always done, which is focus on bringing in diverse classes and promoting inclusion throughout uh, the university environment. It's it's just one of those sort of odd things where that's happening here, but yeah, we're not so certain, certain what's happening uh, across the state. Um, and of course, the state's not a monolith, right? I mean, I've been in these other conversations with, with colleagues or friends, um, Uh, just kind of about the state of Florida and people understandably saying things where should I fear for my safety because uh, of what's happening there? Will, you know, will, will I be under duress if I I come to your community or come and visit your state? And while I think the laws can make that um, challenging and I think people have an appropriate response to maybe be hesitant about that. I've found in the environment here at the university anyways, things have continued as they have always been, which is trying to be the most welcoming, inclusive environment as possible. Um, but it does, you know, raise alarms for, I think, a lot of people. It has you looking around the state to see what other institutions are doing. Uh, and it definitely raises the questions from incoming students and families about what is happening. So it's, it's an interesting time. For sure. Uh, I think um, it's going to continue to be interesting, especially we've got the the presidential election and Governor Santos is in that race. So who knows what's going to happen there and what's going to change. But um, um, it's it's definitely strange all around kind of seeing what's happening uh, across Florida. And it's not isolated to us as well, right? We're sort of the at the front of it, but I know Texas is, is encountering some of this as well. Uh, and um, I know there seem to be some other states that are starting to look at DEI policy, practice, and law uh, and seeing what they want to do to kind of change it at the state level and um, uh, what policies and laws might, might, might be impacted by that. 
I, I want to return briefly to the idea of uh, holistic admissions process. Um, I, I myself spent some time interning for the pre-professional advising services here on campus, where we were helping students prepare for professional schools and apply to professional schools, especially medical school. And there's a very intensive um, holistic admissions process for those medical school students to adhere to that takes into account, you know, not just the scores and, and grades, but also their experience and personal development. Um, and I personally see both benefits and detriments to this holistic process and how it impacts the students. Um, so as an admissions professional, do you have opinions that you'd be comfortable sharing on like holistic admissions processes similar to what professional schools see? Yeah, um, I, I think it's, as, as, as we touched base earlier on this, um, I think it's an important topic, and I think more schools are going to continuously look in this direction to say, how do we consider the entirety of an individual versus just their, their test scores, right? Um, test scores are important, and they do have value, uh, but there are schools that are leaning test optional. Uh, we're one of them. We have test optional policies here. Uh, but when you look at an SAT score for math for somebody who's going into aerospace engineering, it can have value, a predictive value about what their likelihood is for for having success in that. Um, the same can be said for their academic preparation in general as well, right? And their high school courses and what they've selected. Uh, but I think if your goal is, especially if you're not a STEM institution and your goal is to probably have a more representative class and population of the uh, area you serve and have greater reflection of that diversity, it is important to look holistically at students and what they can bring to that university or college community. And I think this is probably more true or perhaps greater emphasized on uh, residential campuses, right? Um, so on residential campuses, uh, you typically have this community that lives and interacts with each other on a more regular basis. And if your goal is to diversify that as much as possible, it can be super helpful to bring in as diverse a class uh, by through looking holistically versus focusing just on merits uh, and or test scores alone. Um, so I think that holistic process is important. Um, and I think it's gonna vary, again, depending on the type of institution you're at and the type of setting uh, that you have in play. So recently there's been uh, increased interest, or at least in my news feeds, there has been um, in the practice of legacy admissions. Can you briefly explain legacy admissions practices and how they play into or against DEI efforts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry, I had somebody at my door for a second, so I was just shutting. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, legacy admissions. I guess the the short version of that is sort of like a preferential admissions, right? Uh, it usually is going to benefit somebody, oftentimes the children or grandchildren of alumni uh, at an institution. And where it's wonderful for those, I think the big concern for those individuals who might have a parent or a, a grandparent at a, uh, that graduated from a particular institution, where I think most people get concerned is that it perpetuates privilege. And it's most notable at those more selective institutions, um, especially if you think of the, the Ivies. In fact, with legacy admissions coming up in the news cycle uh, in the wake of the SCOTUS decision, um, uh, I think one of the things that kind of flew under the radar 
is that the DOE actually opened up an investigation into Harvard's uh, legacy admissions practices, right? So they're one of those IVs uh, that are uh, extremely difficult to get into the competitive, the competition to get admission to Harvard, to Yale, to Brown, we all know is ultra competitive. Uh, and what the DOE did was they responded to a complaint that, um, I can't remember the exact language, but in it, it had suggested that about a quarter of the class that was accepted into Harvard in maybe 2019 or 2020 um, was legacy admits. And because the, that quarter of the class is accepted and there's only so much capacity, that took up space that could have been offered to students that uh, were coming from a variety of different backgrounds. And almost inherently, the 25% of the class came from traditional white privileged background. And that's just looking at historical legacy, right? If you have in the namesake itself, legacy admissions, a parent, a grandparent, a great grandparent, and you just go back through history and it's almost all white wealthy folks coming through that lineage, that's just gonna perpetuate that privilege. And so where most people probably get concerned and where I tend to find um, the greatest amount of concern uh, around that and where I also personally feel it, it, it fails an institution is that some of those legacy admits may not have the same academic preparation as a student outside of it. So they're not as prepared academically. Maybe they have a lower GPA, lower test scores than somebody else, but because their parent went there, they have that opportunity that's not provided to somebody else or a grandparent. Um, and it's not always a relative. Sometimes legacy admissions is associated to uh, extended family. Uh, sometimes uh, it, it can be an alumni who has a great sphere of influence, right? If you're an alumnus who's donated or made several contributions to a college or university and you uh, want somebody, whether it's a relative or a family friend, uh, to have some preferential consideration in admissions, that's a legacy admissions uh, uh, opportunity. And so I think most people are concerned because it does perpetuate that privilege. And that privilege typically is a form of white privilege uh, that's generational. And so it does leave some of those other folks on the outside that may have the same or even in some cases better qualifications than those students that are getting admitted to these really competitive and highly selective institutions. So we previously did an episode on the international and international students and learned about their experiences with coming into the U.S. In your opinion, what are some of the bigger hurdles for international students in the admissions process? Uh, that's a great question. I used to be, when I was at Lake Superior State, uh, uh, what's called a designated school official. And most of our students in, in, in that capacity were coming from Canada. So you don't think, oh, wow, that's so far, <laughs> literally across the border. Uh, but we did have some international students and uh, that came from outside of Canada. And uh, working with those students was always interesting and, and almost always re uh, rewarding in most circumstances. Um, I think some of the challenges, the two that really stand out that they oftentimes face are, are certainly um, the cultural challenges when transitioning, just the expectations of what academic life and university life might be at in the United States versus the realities of it. Uh, and in the actual admissions process, 
uh, understanding the financial requirements to be able to come to the United States. So if you're an international student who wants to come to any college or university, one of the standards for being able to enter is not an academic standard. It's not your preparedness and, and how well you've done on tests and grades. Those things get considered, of course, but it's an ability to show that you have the financial backing to be able to afford your education. Uh, because while some aid may be available, typically in the form of scholarship, they're not going to qualify for Title IV, federal aid, grants, loans, all those things that would be available typically to uh, domestic students. So I've had, unfortunately, those challenges um, with working with international students in the past where they're great students and they can't simply demonstrate the financial ability to be able to cover their tuition, room and board, and travel costs to be able to come to the university. Because uh, it's typically above and beyond what the quote unquote sticker price is. You add tuition, room and board, they have to show a set amount each year of what the expected travel is going to be for it, all those things. And so it ends up largely being this huge number for most students. And if they can't show that, the admissions process oftentimes stops for them. So that's that's difficult for international students. Um, what that cultural challenge is also it is also a real thing. Uh, but I think most schools have gotten really good at trying to create intentional programming for that. I know here at Embry-Riddle, we do a lot of programming the summer leading up to the fall, a traditional cohort of students coming in. Uh, that includes Zoom sessions with students, uh, some online programming before they arrive so they get to know each other, try to create community through social platforms with them, everything possible to try to create engagement and familiarity before they actually make that physical move from wherever they're coming from. And, you know, maybe get on a plane and fly 2000 miles away from home for the first time, and then see all this in person and experience all these, these differences. And those students that have actively engaged and participated in those sort of onboarding programs almost universally seem to say like, it, it was huge. It helped relieve anxiety, concern, it helped me felt like I was connected before I arrived to the institution. Um, so I think creating that community the best you can before that actual physical tran uh, transfer or, 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 or trip to the university uh, is really big with, with international students. All right. And I know we're running up against the clock here. So this is our last question for you today. Um, but what are your top two suggestions on how the admissions process can keep diversity, equity and inclusion in mind? I think you mentioned it. We talked about it. That holistic process is important. Uh, I think if we're looking at the entirety of an individual, that's how you best try to bring in a population that I think reflects the the area you serve and the diversity of potential uh, talent uh, that can come to an institution. And I think if so, if you're looking holistically, I think that's a key part to it. And part of the conversation that uh, is happening nationally right now is not only that holistic piece, but what are the other sort of data points that we can look at that can serve as proxies, that can serve as indicators for um, where we can go to help people out. Um, and on that last one, one thing where uh, at my former institution, Florida State College of Jacksonville, as an access institution, 
that we really focused on is trying to go to the places that other schools weren't. Um, so those underserved communities, right? And it was at that time, and I think it's outdated. I haven't checked it out in a while. There was this uh, website, you all may be familiar with it, called the Opportunity Atlas. And it is, it's probably dated. I imagine even then when I was there, which was about, you know, it's, it's been a few years, but at the time we were using it, it was probably four or five years ago. I think it was, the data was probably like four or five years old. But what it gave you was uh, the United States and you could drill down to zip code level and you could look at that zip code and you could see the data regarding incarceration rates, poverty levels, single family households, um, educational attainment. And so that's something we could look at and say, look, these are the places that have great need and where we need to spend more time to try to actually change the life and career trajectories of these individuals um, by promoting the access mission that we have and getting into this institution and uh, trying to equip them with the tools and resources so they can have success. Uh, so I guess going back to your original question, there are two things. I think holistic admissions is really key and just being intentional and targeted about where you go and who you're trying to serve uh, with bringing students to your college or university. Uh, and it's, it's part of the mission of those access institutions like an FSCJ. And I would hope especially for the more selective institutions, sort of the ones that are household names, the Harvards, the Yales, that they would be intentional about those practices as well. Not as familiar with what they, they do for their recruitment, um, but I would hope that uh, in, in context of everything that's happening in our, our nation today and, and the focus on DEI, uh, that they would be uh, concerted in their efforts to try to go where the students are at. Thank you so much for joining us today, Al. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to join. Uh, apologize for rambling sometimes, uh, but this is a fun topic to me. Uh, and sometimes you just start going on some of these topics and you just want to talk about everything. And it's just a little bit difficult to maybe contain some of those pieces. But um, thanks again for, for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, wish you all the best in your continued efforts with uh, online and, and inclusive. We'd like to thank Al for joining us today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe and rate our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We value your feedback and your ratings and reviews will help others discover our show. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Inclusive Online Pod and our Facebook page, Inclusive and Online. If you'd like to get in touch with us with your ideas, feedback, or request to collaborate, you can send us an email at inclusiveonlinepod at gmail.com. We'll be back next month with our next episode. And until then, we hope you feel included.